0: I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles, we're going to look, We've been pre- I've been preaching through a number of Psalms, but I'm going to have us turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 11. So we're still in the same, what we would call the same literary genre. We're in the wisdom literature this morning. I'll tell the story of an old rich man who was really a miserable person, had a terrible disposition. And he went to his rabbi one day and he, you know he was trying to figure out how to get straightened out. That's probably a good person to go see. And he he came to the rabbi, and the rabbi said to him, look into the street, and what do you see? Because he had led him to this window. And the man said, well, as he's looking out the window, I see men, I see children, I see women. Then the rabbi took him by the hand, and this time he led him to the mirror. He says, now what do you see? Well, I see myself, he said. And then the rabbi said, well, in the window which is made of glass, and in the mirror there's glass, but the glass in the mirror is covered with a little silver. And no sooner is the silver added than you cease to see others, but only yourself. One of the reasons why people are unhappy is they can only see themselves. They, they can't get past themselves. Maybe it's issues in their life. It's amazing how often wealth has a way of corrupting and corrupting us. We does not we doesn't mean to do... You know, it's not, that's not its intent. I, be, I believe wealth is a gift. We're going to look at this. But what we need to realize, it can often degenerate when we start having a little more into higher expressions of selfishness. We start consuming rather than understanding what God's real intention is. And so how can you and I not lose a vision... From the window. How can you and I move away from the mirror of our lives. Where we only think about ourselves. And only see ourselves. How can we move to that place. Where we actually can begin to see beyond ourselves. You know I was thinking of the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. It says in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And immediately when Isaiah the, the man of God. Gained a proper I mean, we had this encounter with God. He gained literally a proper understanding of the nature of God, his power, his holiness. I believe all of the characteristics of God are seen as we are encountering God. But something else happened at that moment. And the very next words out of his mouth were, Woe is me. What Isaiah saw was not only the, the greatness, majesty, the power, the holiness of God. But he also saw how sinful he really was in, that, in the presence of that God. And that's exactly what happens. Sometimes that's why people don't want to go to church. They don't feel comfortable because what happens is we're in the presence of God. And God begins to zo- zoom in into our innermost being. And sometimes there's things that we don't want to acknowledge. We'd, and all of a sudden we become aware of these things. But it's not designed to make us feel bad about ourselves, it's designed to address these issues in our soul so that you and I can be free from those things, so that you and I can move away from the mirror once again and begin to see out the window. We can see way beyond, you know, this self-focus in our lives. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that in that portrait in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has the vision of God and he sees himself as he is, then God comes along and touches him with a coal from the altar and cleanses him. And then God was speaking to himself. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are communing. They said, who shall we send? And Isaiah all of a sudden says, here, my Lord, send me. In other words, immediately Isaiah begins to think of other people. And I believe that when you and I encounter God, it moves us away from just simply focusing in on ourselves to beginning to look through that window and beginning to see the needs of those around us and recognize that what we possess is so much greater than what most people possess. And as we were listening to that little clip about if the world were a village of 100 people and then they kind of broke it down into, you know, how people are actually living in our world and how many people are actually needy. How many recognize that you and I in this part of the world are living a very enriched life? We are so blessed. And yet often what we tend to do is not focus on the blessings. We tend to focus on what we still think we lack. It's interesting that uh, as we're going to look at a text of Scripture, a number of verses from the book of Proverbs, we see what happens when God becomes central to our lives, when He is at the very essence of our being and how that delivers us from some of the cultural pressures that surround us. You know, the essence of life is really all about where we are putting our trust. Where are we looking for our source of hope, for the strength to go on in life? And once we've settled that issue, even though there is pressure to deviate from that course, we become actually a powerful message to people around us. We actually become the message. It actually becomes incarnational. This life of Christ, this beautiful good news about Jesus now is now dwelling within us, and we actually are carrying the message by the way we are living our lives and by the way we're communicating to others. And so there's a tension in our world between, as we're going to see in, in Proverbs 11, putting our trust in wealth versus putting our trust in God, in God's way, in God's path. Jesus kind of summarized it in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 24. He said, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You know, it's not like, what Jesus is saying is this is an impossibility. The moment you begin to serve one, you are negating the other. There's no synergism between serving money and serving God. They don't work. It doesn't go together. And we're going to see this deep contrast being presented here in Proverbs 11, where wisdom is expressed in making the right choice. You know, God has a pathway for us. And, you know, generally speaking, the pathway is very similar for every believer, I mean, it's the same path, but how that fleshes out in our individual lives may look a little different, but we're walking on that path. And so we're being warned here in this book about the seduction that, we, that wealth can, can bring. It doesn't necessarily have to, but it, if I'm putting my trust in it, it will certainly seduce me. Look at verse 4 of Proverbs 11. We're going to read a number of verses. I'm going to jump over some, and then we're going to come back and look at these verses. It says here in verse 4, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. We're going to hang on to that thought. There's a place where wealth has no adequacy. And secondly, it says in verse uh, 16, a kind hearted woman gains respect, but ruthless men gain only wealth. Isn't that interesting? We have a parallelism, a comparison between the ruthless man and the kind-hearted woman. One gains respect, the other uh, can only bring a limited element called wealth. Next verse, a kind-hearted man benefits himself, but a cruel man brings trouble on himself. So now we 're going to see you know the value of righteousness or trusting God versus Trusting in wealth. The wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Skipping down to verse 24. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Next verse. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Next verse. People curse the man who hoards grain, but blessings crown him who is willing to sell. Drop down to verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. He who brings trouble on his family will inherit only wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more? The ungodly and the sinner. So what we're going to look at as we look through this chapter is this comparison between the righteous and the wicked between you know trusting in wealth versus trusting in God. So the basic premise in our text is really raising the question where am i putting my trust? Who am i? And sometimes we have to, you know, take a look at the scriptures. You know, the Bible does teach us that the word of God is actually a, a revelatory element. It teaches my true soul condition and that's what we're going to look at today. Where am I really at today? Where am I really at based on things like my relationships with others? Where am I really at based on my relationship with God? And how does that play out in my relationship with others? Well, the first element that's really going to be a, a life that impacts the lives of other people is that there's an inadequacy at wealth at the core of our lives. In other words, wealth itself will not ultimately satisfy our lives. Money is not everything. But for some people, the way they live their lives, it would seem to be the only thing. And yet we learn from these wisdom writers that money or wealth is actually a shelter. There's actually there's some positive things. So I don't want you to walk away going, well, money's bad. No, no. Money and wealth are not necessarily bad. It's it's our attitude toward it and what we're doing with it that determines if it's good or bad. And so we look in the book of Ecclesiastes and it basically teaches us that money is a shelter. In other words, money has some value. You know, wealth has some value. It says here, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. They both are shelters. But the advantage of knowledge or wisdom is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. In other words wisdom is greater because it has it it supersedes what wealth can bring. In other words money can help us in many situations in life but not in every situation. In other words you know what we can't buy our way out of every problem. Isn't that true? There's just some situation, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's not going to make a difference. If I'm, if I'm about ready to die, no matter how much money I have, I can pay all the money in the world, but I may not extend one single minute to my life. In that moment, money has no value. As a matter of fact, we're going to read here in Proverbs 11:4 that says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. In other words, the moment I'm standing before Almighty God to give an account of my life, it doesn't matter how much money I have. At that moment, it won't mean a thing. I could be a billionaire standing before God, but we all intrinsically, intrinsically realize that's not what's going to make a difference. At that moment, where I put my trust will matter. How I lived my life will matter. The kind of character I became will matter. All the money I acquired will not matter at that moment. What matters in those situations. In life, not just that the judgment is who we really are rather than what we've really acquired. It's not that important. Proverbs 10, 2 says, ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. So it's not so much wealth itself, it's how we acquired the wealth that's of great concern to the wisdom writers. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie says the wealth... That the subversive and treacherous accumulate in defiance of the Lord's rule and at the expense of others will backfire and not save them in the time of God's wrath. In other words, we have to evaluate how am I acquiring what I'm getting? Am I doing this at the expense of other people? Because if I am, that's a problem. That's what we're talking about here in this text. It says here in Proverbs eleven three, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Now that word duplicity means I'm misleading other people intentionally for my advantage. In other words, I'm conning people. I'm cheating people. I'm taking advantage of people. And you know, that's the thing that God is evaluating in our lives. How are we treating those around us? That is so important. By contrast, the integrity of the upright will guide them to salvation, and their righteousness will protect them from the judgment to come on the wicked. Isn't it amazing that, you know what, if we're doing the right thing, how many of you are doing the right thing, you probably don't have to fear, you know, the police? You know, if if you're not speeding on Highway 2, you don't have to worry about speed traps. Are we catching the picture? You see, if we're living the right kind of life, we're not really worried about what's going to happen. But, you know, if we're out there, you know, selling drugs and, you know, cheating drug dealers, we may have somebody show up and they may not be too nice to us. Now you go, those are so obvious, you know, illustrations, Pastor. But we could go down into deeper subtleties of this. I'm, I'm, I'm using very, you know, dramatic and drastic situations. But hang in there, folks, because over time here, you're going to see how this works into my day-to-day relationships, you know, Tremper Longman is rightly pr- reminding us Proverbs has nothing against riches. In a number of places, the book suggests that wealth can be a blessing from God for wise behavior. Matter of fact, Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. In other words, there is a wealth that's not a headache or a heartache. It says, Proverbs 11.4, however, makes it clear that such protection is limited and certainly no one not as helpful as righteousness. In other words, if you had to choose between wealth and righteousness, what would you choose today? I hope you would choose righteousness, but I'll tell you what, today you may not want to choose righteousness, but the day you're standing before God, you'll say, I'll choose righteousness over wealth any day of the week. Isn't that the truth? Absolutely. What we're seeing is that wealth per se is not the issue but rather my attitude and where I'm placing my trust. How am I acquiring it? Why am I acquiring it? What am I doing with what God has blessed me with? And what happens when I put my trust in wealth rather than God? So let me look at the second, the, the second issue here is the handling of wealth in a proper way. Okay, if God's going to give us this, you know, this gift, what are we going to do with it? How do we handle it so that it doesn't destroy us? How many think... That, you know, people that have won the lotto, a lot of times it's really wrecked their lives. How many actually know that? It doesn't wreck everybody's life, but it sure wrecks a lot of people's lives. It's wrecked their families. It's had, you know, people have had all kinds of problems, and some people have wished they'd never gotten that money because it was such a damaging element in their life. It destroyed them. So how can we learn to handle wealth properly? Well, we answered that question earlier in what we are to do with what God has given us. Then we'll be able to handle what God has blessed us with. Now, in other words, I don't allow money to be my master. I actually use it as a servant. And I've said this many times. Money is a great servant but a terrible master. So I think we need a biblical understanding, first of all, of man's purpose and relationship to God. And here's, I think, one of the important elements in life is simply this. Why am I on this planet? What's the purpose? Why did God create human beings? That's a great question. I think we've got to go back to that question and answer that question correctly. As a matter of fact, Paul in the book of Colossians says this. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word firstborn doesn't mean He was born. It just means He's preeminent over all creation. And for for by Him all things were created. So then, if, if all things were created by Jesus Christ, he's the creator. That's what he's basically saying here, right? And then it says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him. So Christ is the agent in creating. It says Christ created the world. You know, Read that verse again. All things were created by him. But the next part of that little expression is very powerful. Why were these things created? Why was everything created? It was created for him. So the reason you're here today on this planet is for Christ. You are created to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about us. How many things? that's kind of a shock, you know. You know, here I, I think it's about me. God's going to do this for me. No, God does these things for us because he loves us. But we need to understand that we were designed and made and have a purpose that was designed by God and we were made for him, for his good pleasure. A matter of fact, I was just reading the King James Version in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11. And it says, and we were created for his pleasure. Other translations say it a little differently, but I think that's a clean, clear way of understanding it. We're here for God. God's not here for us. We're here for him. He made us for himself. And then when he created Adam, remember, he, he put him in the garden. i got to ask the question, did Adam own the garden? No, he didn't. And when Adam sinned, God kicked him out of the garden because the garden belonged to God. As a matter of fact, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns everything on the planet. You and I own nothing, nada, Now, we got to reshape our thinking because when you and I perceive life as an owner, that creates all kinds of different issues. How many know owners and managers are in a totally different relationship to a business? An owner has the headaches and has the burden and the pressure of making the thing going and providing for the business. Isn't that true? The owner has that pressure. The manager has a responsibility to manage the business well for the sake of the owner. But the big headache and problems always go back to the owner. And if the owner says to the manager, I don't want you to do it that way, what does the manager say? No problem, I'll do it your way. And if he doesn't do it the owner's way, what happens? He probably doesn't have a job as the manager, right? Are we getting a picture? So what I'm trying to paint in your mind is, you and I have to shift our thinking and no longer see ourselves as owners and no longer take the weight of all this responsibility on ourselves and begin to see ourselves as managers and God is the owner and we're accountable to him isn't that beautiful but then he has the pressure of making sure that we're taking care of and meeting our needs and supplying all the things that we need of in this life it's a whole different kind of relationship look what happened when god created man in the garden god blessed them them adam and eve and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, I'm delegating authority to you, human beings, to oversee the care of my planet. Now, have we always done a good job with that? I don't think so. We've kind of abused the planet, you know. You know, we have a new movement now, environmentalism. Can I tell you, God's always been an environmentalist. He's always been concerned about his planet. He wants us to take care of it. Yeah, it makes sense. He created it. We have an accountability. We can't just abuse it. And so God has this uh, this sense of purpose. And he's designed this world for a purpose, to glorify his name. And it's not just taking care of the, the things on the planet, like the trees and the animals. What about taking care of each other? We have a responsibility to one another. We need to care for each other. And and that's where often as humanity, we've exploited things or we've exploited people thinking that we are unaccountable for our actions. You see, when you take God out of the equation, then people become, in their mind, unaccountable. As a matter of fact, Paul Coptake says this, pride in the Old Testament, is often different from our ideas of vanity and conceit. And I'm not saying that those are wrong ideas. I think the New Testament says very deeply that pride is an issue of vanity and pride is an issue of conceit. But let me just point out, in the Old Testament, there's another thought that we need to factor in, and he says it this way. It points to the folly and arrogance of those who believe that they can abuse others and not be brought to account. In other words, you know, when, when you're an atheist... When you don't believe in God and you're accountable to no one, you don't really care how you treat people because you don't feel there's any recourse. And that's exactly what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 59, verses 7 to 8. He says, see what they spew from their mouths. They spew out swords from their lips. How many think that's, that's, obviously it's poetry, right? They're not spewing out physical swords. but In other words, their words are so sharp and penetrating, they're actually words that bring death instead of life. It says, and they say, who can hear us? I spelled that wrong. Who can hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. In other words, they feel like they can say and do whatever they want, and there's no accountability how they're treating each other. This is a practical atheism. So even though people can say, I believe in God, we can behave like practical atheists, you know. Wisdom, its opposite, knows that we have to give an answer for our actions and therefore we have a sense of boundary. See, humility knows one thing. Humility is dependency on God. Humility knows we're accountable to God. Humility knows that we can't call all our own shots. We have to treat each other a lot differently because in this powerful sense, we're all made in the image of God. And even though people sin against God and the image of God is marred in their lives, God still looks at how we're treating each other. Look how God even treated his enemies when he was hanging from a tree. He continued to show love to them, and he forgave them. Isn't that powerful? And we all appreciate that, don't we? But that's the nature of God. So whenever humanity thinks that they're owners and not caretakers or managers of what God has blessed us with, we end up becoming very exploitive because we become very selfish. And we see a lot of selfishness on our planet, do we not? People exploiting each other. Why? Because these people are trusting in wealth rather than trusting in God. Now, how did we get here? How did our culture get to where we are today? I've been actually listening to a series of lectures by a university professor in the mornings. You know, I I purchased these lectures and I'm listening to them and I'm currently listening to lectures on the cycles of American political thought. Doesn't that sound interesting? Yeah, some of you go, Pastor, I can't believe you're into this stuff, but you know, I'm taking a course on Proverbs and I'm listening to lectures on cycles of American political thought. But you know, you learn from everybody. And this guy, Dr. Joseph Kabilka, whose premise in the course and now he's speaking of the United States, okay? But I think that there's huge overlap into our nation. You'll hear, you'll hear why. Because he's, he's explaining, and I don't know where he's coming from, but you know, I'm taking his material and I'm interpreting it in a certain way. He just basically shares that America has shed her theological underpinnings. Rather, they moved away from Puritanism, and they basically have embraced liberalism as a predominant thought. Now, when we talk about liberalism... We're not talking about a political party. We're talking about a philosophy, a political philosophy grounded on the primacy of the individual. And liberalism was born from the enlightenment in the 18th century, okay? And what basically the enlightened thinkers did is they took God out of the equation, they made man the ultimate authority, and they focused on the value of, and the primacy of the individual. And this started moving into the Thought of the political realm and how people were willing to shape society now let me just point out some interesting things about this basic primacy of, of thought on the focus on the individual central to its arguments are the concepts of rational self-interest consent rights limited government liberty and equality now some of those things sound pretty good But these central concepts are all subject to a different interpretation and wings. In other words, what what he's basically bringing out is it's very man-oriented and very man-centered. And that's the culture in which we're living in today. But I'm going to show you what happens. Then you come along and you have permeations of liberalism until you get to a writer like uh, David Henry Thoreau. How many have ever heard of David Henry Thoreau? Okay. So he's writing... And he's, he's basically go, he, he, he's basically saying, look, I'm having some problems with the government's intrusion. In other words, they want a limited government. And, and his idea is, he, and he writes it in his book, Civil Disobedience. Now when you and I think of civil disobedience, we think of, you know, uh, I don't want to violate my conscience before God being asked to do something that I know is morally wrong. But that's not what Henry Thoreau is talking about. What he's talking about is that when his own conscience is in conflict with something the government is asking, therefore he's going to enact civil disobedience. Thoreau, though, had no sense of the well-being of the successful working of society or of any social obligation. As a matter of fact, he writes in the book Civil Disobedience, uh, this, uh, this thought, sorry, is this. I'm not responsible, this is Henry Thoreau, for the successful working of the machinery of society. In other words, I'm not responsible for anybody else but myself. Basically, he's saying that his only purpose in his mind was to be the best person he could be, and this could only be done without any sort of social restrictions imposed from society. How many, is, is, are you getting any faint echoes of what's going on? Because isn't this the culture we're living in today where people say, look, I will do what I want to do, and no one's going to tell me what to do. And I don't even care if it's coming from the government anymore. I'm just going to do my thing. See, we're getting echoes of this in Thoreau's writing. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say it this way. Dr. Kube, uh, Kibelka says that the irreducible core of liberalism is the individual and his autonomy. Now, the word autonomy means I'm on my own. I can do whatever I want. He's basically teaching that, you know, man is self-autonomous. How many know that this is just actually an expression of rebellion against God? I will do what I want to do. Now, I'm bringing all of this out. You go, this is a little heady stuff, Pastor. You're kind of messing with our heads here a bit. But no, I'm trying to bring out an important point. The strong philosophical liberalism I'm not talking about the party now. I'm talking about a philosophy of life. It's so permeated North America, this is what's driving us. Did you guys get this? Everybody understand? This is what's driving us today. And it's in conflict with what the Word of God teaches. And that's why there's such a battle going on. We're all wanting to just do our own things. And we feel justified because liberalism supports that. That's what I'm getting at. So it's a life independent of anyone, including God. And that's a problem. Now God blesses us with these wonderful gifts, which includes our mind, our bodies. God has gifted us with where we live and all of the beautiful opportunities that we have before us. But he does that not so that you and I get everything to consume upon ourselves and become very self-centered and selfish. See, that's what liberalism is teaching. What God wants us to know is that he gives us these gifts in order for you and I to use them to enrich and bless other people. So that you and I are not just looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves. God wants us to be looking at the window and seeing the people out there that need us. That God is going to use our lives to impact their lives. That God wants to bless our world and he wants to do it through people. And he wants to do it through people like us who now are looking through a window rather than looking at a mirror. And all the people that are just looking at the mirror, all they see is themselves. And the most unhappy people are those people that can only see themselves. They are the most miserable people. They are the most unhappy people. And the happiest people are the ones that don't see themselves because how many know That usually when you're looking through a window, you're not really looking at yourself at all. You're looking through the window. You're looking past the window, and you're actually seeing everything else but yourself. It is very freeing. Now take a look at what happens in these texts that we're looking at. Look at verse 16 again. A kind-hearted woman gains respect. Do you want to gain respect, he says? Think outside yourself. How many of you are kind-hearted? That's going to be expressed in action. And so what happens is when you and I begin to show kindness, others begin to respect that. And then it says, here, but the second half of that, of that proverb, which is always a, usually it's a, what we call an anthetical or an opposite idea. He takes the woman, puts the man, the kind-hearted woman versus the ruthless man. The woman gains respect. What does the man gain? It says, "Only wealth." In other words, money. period. Wealth, period, nothing else, no respect. A kind man benefits himself. That's interesting. So it goes on to say, listen, when you and I are benefiting and blessing other people, in reality, who you're ultimately benefiting is yourself. That's what this Proverbs is teaching us. You are actually benefiting from this. And then it says, but a cruel man, what happens to that person? Only brings trouble on himself goes on to say the wicked man earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly means unnecessarily. They have the resources. They could do something, but they decide not to. It says, but they come to nothing. They They become impoverished. They come to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. People curse the man who hoards grain, but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. So we have these contrasts. And Dr. Walkie points, by contrast, attempting to overthrow others for self-gratification, boomerangs against the cruel and unexpectedly brings about the violent overthrow of his own interests. And, and I'm thinking of some stories, you know, Before I get there, take a look at this chapter. He's talking about this beautiful, kind-hearted woman, right? That's talking about inner character, by the way. Then you look at verse 22. There's another contrast in this chapter. It says, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. And so I believe he's contrasting the two women. You know, there's a picture here. How many have ever seen a beautiful woman on the outside, but on the inside, heartless, cruel, and cold? that ever happen? You know what? The true beauty is an inward beauty. Actually, it teaches that. Scripture teaches that. You and I can do a little bit to fix the outside, right? We can go to the plastic surgery. do. It. But I mean, generally speaking, there's not a lot you can do about the outside, but there's a lot we can do about the inside. And, you know, the Bible talks about the, the beauty that comes from within a person. And there are some people, I've, I've actually looked at them, you know, physically they're not attractive but they are attractive. There's an inward beauty flowing out of them that draws you to them. You can't help yourself. You're attracted to that person. And then there are people who are beautiful on the outside, but they're repulsive. You don't want to be around them. They're snarky. They're selfish. They're full of themselves. You know, there's nothing attractive about them. Yeah, physically they're attractive, but... They're not that attractive. And he actually likens it and uses the metaphor, it's like a pig running around in the barnyard with a, you know, a precious ring around its nose. It's just, it's, it's in, it, it just weird, you know, right? It's, it's not jiving. You just think, wow, I should be attracted to you, but I'm not attracted to you, you know, because I can't see past, you know, the ring looks good, but everything else don't look so good. The beauty looks good on the outside, but everything on the inside says, I don't like it. <laughs> Do you follow the message? It's really powerful what he's trying to tell us here. They have this contrast that's going on. Then I, then I, I look at the stories. Now, I love these proverbs, but they don't seem to really connect to us until you put a story to them. And I, I immediately thought of the story of a, of a, a couple named Nabal and Abigail. And that story is actually found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's the time when David is not yet the king. Not yet king. He's running from Saul. Life is not going good for David. He's got a bunch of vagabonds traveling with him. They're doing some raiding. But, you know, when you're kind of a semi outlaw, life is not that good. You're not making a ton of money. And it shows there because he comes to this guy and asks for some food. Here's the story. It says, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. And then he goes on to describe his wealth. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. So here's this guy now, because all wealth was equated by the kind of goods you possess, like livestock. And he had all this livestock, and they're partying. He's got excess, Okay. Keep that in mind. Very wealthy. He has excess. He's partying. Actually, if you read the chapter, he's even, you know, partying to a beyond good measure. He's getting drunk. Not a good thing. And then we read in the very next verse, his name was Nabal, which is very suitable for him because it means fool. And he's going to behave like a fool. And his wife's name was Abigail, and she was intelligent and beautiful. The Bible in the Old Testament rarely uses physical descriptions to describe people unless it's of real significance. In other words, she's sharp, smart lady, attractive. But her husband, a Calebite, was surely and mean in his dealings. So this, you know, when people are mean, they just, you know, they they don't have any sort of compassion and concern about other people. So he's having a good time. He's partying. And David's men come and ask him for some food. And you know what he tells them? He says, why would I give you guys something? You know, you're you're a bunch of band of outlaws. You're running from King Saul. I have no concern about you guys. Get off my property. Get out of here. And so, you know, these servants that are serving see these guys leave, and they, they notice they're not happy. They're really upset. And they're going to go tell, tell David how he's been answered. And how many know that when you have, you know, a bunch of Guys that are soldiers and stuff, you could probably just go take the sheep, you know? And if you're really ticked at somebody and you have the ability to do harm, you may do harm. And so, you know what? These servants were smart enough to see these guys right off knowing that they were not happy and that, you know what, there was trouble coming back this way, big time, because of the idiot master that they had who was not thinking straight, so the one guy runs to his wife and says, listen, David asked for some food, and you know Nabal was you know bombed out of his mind, told these guys to take a hike, and I mean, those guys left, and they were upset, and this doesn't bode well for us. She says, saddle up the donkeys, put some food on it, we're going over there to meet David. And good thing she did that, because David now is ticked off, he's riding with his man, and he made a decision in his heart, I'm gonna kill every last one of those dudes. Because here we are, starving, they're feasting, and they could care less about us. And we've been protecting them from all kinds of outlaws and raiders and all the rest of it. And so we pick up the story. She meets David and says, hey, David, listen, don't do this thing. I know God's hand is on your life. You don't want to mess with this guy. He's an idiot anyways. His name is Nabal, means a fool. I mean, she's just talking to him, you know, telling him, hey, you don't want to kill us, kill our guys there. And so David responds to her in this way. He says, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. And then he says, may you be blessed for your good judgment. Remember, it says she was intelligent. In other words, she had wisdom. She knew what to do. She stopped this great slaughter of life. This, you know, no need for it. And he said, you've kept me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Then David accepted for her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. In other words, nothing's nothing bad is going to happen to you. What an amazing story. Why am I bringing that up? Because Nabal is really a description of the kind of person we're talking about. Somebody who's trusting his wealth. He's he's, he's not generous. He's not kind-hearted. Okay? And we can see what happens. It's actually a detriment to yourself when you become like this. Because you become focused on yourself and you have no concern for other people and eventually it comes around to bite you because your attitude is such that you're always upset with people and you're always trying to figure out an angle and try to take advantage of people. I think of another story. You know, how many know this Bible has some great antagonistic personalities? No, think of the man Haman. You know, he's all upset because Esther's cousin Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. So he decides not only going to kill this guy That's not going to satisfy me. I'm going to exterminate his entire race. I'm going to kill all the Jewish people. So he sets up this elaborate plan to kill them all. And if you know the book of Esther, read the story, it's an amazing story. He builds a gallows 75 feet high because he wants everyone to see poor old Mordecai is swinging on the gallows from all over the city. And guess who ends up swinging on those gallows? He does because he's the same kind of personality. Or think of Pharaoh. What a twist of irony. You know, who ordered that all the male children of Israel should be thrown into the Nile. And later on, what do we find floating in the Red Sea? All of his soldiers are dead. What's my point? My point is simply this. You, gotta, you better be careful who you are because who you are is going to determine your end. And if you're the wrong kind of person, you're going to have a wrong kind of an end. And if you're the right kind of a person, you're going to have the right kind of an end. Very important. There's a paradox here. How many know that when we sow righteousness by doing what's right towards others and we're generous with the resources God has entrusted to us as managers, we can be certain that God will take care of our needs. He's the provider. He's the owner. Just do what he's telling you to do. Yeah, but God, I don't want to give. I'm afraid I won't have enough. God goes, you'll never have enough of that attitude. Just keep giving. I'll let the flow continue. Give and it shall be given. Okay? How many know when you're planting seeds in the ground, when the seed goes down, you're not just hoping for the seed to return? That would be a poor farmer. Right? Anybody know about agriculture here? You put a seed in the ground, what happens? The seed dies, grows up, and what's produced? A whole bunch of seeds. So you're sowing in order to reap a bigger harvest, right? And the Bible is teaching us here. Look at the scriptures. He's using these agricultural terms here. He says here, you know, where to sow. It says, one gives freely, yet gains even more. A generous man will prosper. You know, he who refreshes others will be refreshed. How many think that's kind of a sowing, reaping principle going through the whole book here? It says, and then people curse the man who hoards grain. Now, why would they do that? Isn't that kind of interesting? What, what's this guy doing? You know what he's doing? He's playing the markets. He's got extra grain. He's holding on to it. He's letting people suffer and go without food so the price of grain will go up. And when he sells it, it'll make more money. He's doing it at the expense of others. That's why the Bible says here in the very next verse, it says, the cursing him for doing that, but blessing crowned him who is willing to sell. In other words, the person who could... You know, make a lot more money if he held on. No, he decides he's going to help people and he's just going to sell this grain at market value and be a blessing to people. Those are the people that are blessed. People are thankful for those people. How many are picking up the story here? See, the, see these proverbs, how they're, they're fleshing out? Let me move on here. I've got to go back here. Oh, yeah, I'm going to bring this up because this is important. You know, how many people today... And there's untold devastation in their families because they were trusting wealth rather than trusting God. How many households have fallen apart because people got so consumed with making money at the expense of their relationship? And you know what happens in the end? I'm going to give you the short version, I'll speed it all up. They end up having a relationship breakdown, they end up having to divide all their assets, and at the end of the day, they're all impoverished. How many say that's kind of tragic? That's the warning. He says, he, he said, listen to what it says here. It says, he who brings trouble on his family will inherit only when. Because that's the person in verse 28 who's, who's trusting in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. I like those texts. Let's take a look at these, the final elements here. Okay, because I'm running out of time. Last one is learning to trust God rather than wealth. When we live for God, what He has in store for our lives are not defined by what we have. We're defined by who we are. That's a very powerful thought. You are not being defined by what you have. You're defined by who you are. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. You know, I could go into this, try to unpack this verse here, but Derek Kidner writes about, in the Hebrew language, it means literally the taking away of a life. It can be used negatively, this Hebrew term, or positively. In this verse, it's used positively in the sense of influencing people or winning souls. That's where we get that interpretation, winning souls, where it's actually affecting, impacting, and influencing people. So what does it mean to be a wise person who wins souls? It means that our lives are influencing those around us. How we live, how we give, how we speak, how we spend our time. All of these things speak of what is our primary concern. Isn't that true? That's the way we're living our lives. And people are watching them. You know, a lot of times we're unmotivated to help other people. You know why? We just say, well, I don't know them. They don't deserve it. You know, why don't they get a job? Come on, all these attitudes. Let me ask us all the question in this room. Does God treat you based on how you deserve it or not? How many want to, I'm I'm going to throw something even further out. How would you like God to treat you the way you treat most people? Well, that's basically what's happening. We have to rethink of something. I'm going to leave this thought with you because I think it's very powerful. Do you realize, and David Hubbard kind of brings it up, he says, life is triangular in shape. The Bible sees it. Our person-to-person relationships are like the horizontal base. So here's what you and I used to see. We see each other, right? We're relating to each other. We're either happy, frustrated. We're upset. We're impatient. We're treating each other on a horizontal basis. But David Hubbard brings out this other thought, and he says this. But the apex to which both ends of the base are attached by upthrust lines is the Lord who made and cares for both parties. In other words, on top of the triangle is God who's got, he's hooked right up to both people. And what God is doing is he's watching how we treat each other, and based on how we treat each other, he starts allowing us to be treated in kind, in the same sort of way. Wow, this is powerful. He basically says, the person who oppresses or crushes the poor, the weak, the needy, the disadvantaged, scorns, even blasphemes the poor person's maker. Why? Because so seriously does biblical faith take the doctrine of God's image in man as a gift of divine creation that acts done to a human being are as weighty as though they are done to God. Now think about what, what's being said here. Let me just rephrase it this way. Remember when Jesus told the parable? He said, you know, remember that he, he, he's basically saying, If you've done it for one of these, the least of my brothers, you've done it for me. If they're in jail, you went to visit me. Yeah, well, when did we see you, Jesus? When you visited the prisoner, you visited me. When you went to the hospital, visit that sick person. When you went to visit them, you were actually visiting me. What is Jesus saying? He's basically saying, I'm just going to simplify it. He's basically saying this. The way I treat people is how God perceives the way we're treating him. How many think that's pretty interesting? In other words, the way I treat my wife, the way I treat my children, the way I treat my staff, my friends, the way I treat people, God deems with us. that's how I'm treating him. How many think that if we saw that the way I'm treating people is the way I'm treating God, we might treat people a little better? What do you think? Because, you know, one day we're going to stand before God, he's going to go, I don't like the way you treated me. And you're going to go, when did we treat you anyway? He said, you know the way you treated that person, and the way you treated that person, the way you treated that person, that's how you were treating me. God takes ownership of how we treat each other. So I think we've got to pay a little closer attention to how we treat each other. Now I'm going to shift gears and close with this thought. Let me ask you a question. You know, all through the message I've been saying, where's our trust, right? Are we trusting wealth or are we trusting God? Can we trust God? Okay, but let me throw another thing. Can God trust you? Can God trust you? I think He has. Here's what I'm going to say to us What is our greatest treasure? That's the right answer. God is my greatest treasure. Christ in me is the great treasure. So let me ask another question. Am I sharing my greatest treasure? Am I sharing my greatest treasure? See how powerful this is? Because let's face it. I can give people money and they'll come back and they'll run out of money. Right? I can keep coming back. But let me tell you something. If you and I give people Christ, He's the one that will ultimately satisfy every single need in their life. That is the greatest gift. That is the most expressly generous thing I can do for people is to share Christ with them. Let's go back and read that verse in verse 30. It says what? Whoever wins souls is wise, right? He who wins souls is wise. Is that powerful? That's the greatest expression of generosity. So we're going to stand. And as we close... We've talked about a whole number of things here. I, I couldn't have been all over the map, but Proverbs does that to you. It sends you all over the place. But I'm raising questions. And why am I doing that? The last week, if you were here, you go, Boy, Pastor, I was so encouraged. You know, God's doing this for us. God's doing that for me." I said, Yeah, He does all those things. But now today, now we're exploring. and we're, we're, we're evaluating. We're challenging And we're possibly warning Why would we do that? Because a very loving thing to do is to point out to people if they're doing something that's going to be self-defeating and destructive for them, if I don't warn them, is that a loving thing to do? The answer is, of course not. We need to do that. So we have to sit down today and say to ourselves, okay, where? first of all, I have to answer a number of questions. Where am I putting my trust? That's a great question. Am I putting my trust in wealth, or am I putting my trust in God? Question number one. Well, you can answer that question. How do I know I'm putting my trust in God? Because I'm using the gifts and the wealth that God gives me as a blessing to other people. It's not just for me. I understand my position before God as a manager and not an owner. You see, when people think that they're owners and there's no God, what are they doing? Many of them are exploiting and taking advantage of people to acquire the wealth because they're afraid. They, that's their security. That's where they're putting their trust. So They don't really care who they have to go through or over or under or around to get it. They don't care. But if I'm a child of God, I should care. I should say to myself, I must walk in integrity. I must make sure that I'm acquiring but God is giving me in an in a upstanding way, in a right way. I need to, go to you know, do the right thing. Number two, I need to look around me and say, God, am I looking in a window, through a window, or am I looking at a mirror? Is it about me or is it about others? Only you can answer that question. I can't answer that. I can answer for myself. You know, Am I living my life only for myself or am I living my life for others? And here's the kicker. How many here you have been serving people? I've served people all my life. I'm going to serve them. You know why people quit doing ministry? I'll tell you why. Because people take advantage of you. People criticize you. It's not all fun and games. After a while, it's not worth it anymore. Why would I do this? Life is a lot easier do doing something else. But why do we keep doing it? Well, I like what Paul the Apostle said. He said, you know, God's love is so great. He said, God's love concerns me. When you and I experience God, we experience God's love. Something changes within our hearts. And all of a sudden, what continues to sustain us, to begin to serve other people is no longer them. And what they deserve is based on who he is and what he deserves. I'm living to please him and not them. And that's why I can resist when people say things to me. And I can have boundaries in my life. I don't have to do everything people ask me to do because I'm really not serving all these people. I'm serving God. I'm pleasing one person. But in the process of pleasing that one person, I know that I've got to look around and endeavor to minister grace and love and kindness and patience and compassion. The Lord Do it well, Pastor. No, I fail sometimes. That's my cry. Lord, fill me. And how many here today say, I want to have a life of lasting impact, lasting influence. I've got my hand up. I want to make a difference. I want to live for the glory of God. I want God to be glorified through my life. I want God to be glorified through our life as a church. I want it to have an unusual impact. I want it to impact our city. I want us to impact our province and our nation. I want us to impact our world. And folks, we're doing it at different levels. But I'm saying to myself, God, if you will come in greater power, and we will experience you in a greater measure, if we will see ourselves as we really are, and all of a sudden be transformed by your grace, we will have a new compassion for the people around us. And we will no longer be looking in the mirror and be dissatisfied with ourselves, that we will be looking through the window and say, God, there they are, the people that you love. Help me, oh God, to be their extension. Because God cannot care for people apart from us. That's an amazing statement. What I'm saying is you and I are the body of Christ. God wants to flow through our lives. And show his kindness, his love, his generosity in our community. and to so people finally say, why are you doing what you're doing? And you're saying, it's because God loves you so much. God is working through me to tell you, you are important to him. He cares deeply for you. But I don't deserve it. Neither do I. There's not one person in the room I could say they deserve it. God talks to us when we least deserve it and we most need it. Thank God for that. And let's close today. Let's open our hearts to God. How many here have you know, Pastor? I want to be more the generous heart. I want to pour out, I want, I want to be a vehicle, a vessel. Use the word vessel. God can pour through me and use my life, my family, our church family in a way to impact. Lives of others. How many with me? You're with me in this. So many of Lord, I just thank you this morning. You're feeding into our lives the following trusting human wealth. And you're the Father who owns the cattle in a thousand houses. You have all the resources. You are our heavenly shepherd. You will not let us lack. You will provide. Lord, you trust us. That we will not take all that you're giving us to consume it on ourselves. Can you trust us, O God, to be generous and gracious and kind and loving and faithful to our community, Father? Can you trust us, O God, to do even greater things that we've personally done, Lord? Because we want to bring glory and honor and praise to your name. Because we understand we're just managers. And you're the owner. Lord, we put them with the manual and we say, we want to walk in your way. We want to do your will. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory to you the this morning.